I'm Emily Hawthorne, a Middle East and North Africa analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analyses. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. Because of the accident, I actually ended up being born in Moscow instead of Kiev, unlike the rest of my family, and then only being able to return about a month later. Hello and welcome to this edition of Stratfor Talks, a podcast focused on geopolitics and world affairs from Stratfor.com. I'm Ben Sheen. Today, we're going to speak about the Chernobyl disaster, which happened in 1986. Recently, I sat down with two of Stratfor's analysts to discuss the incident and what's happened since then. I'll let my colleagues introduce themselves. Eugene Chausovsky, Senior Eurasia Analyst. Rebecca Keller, Senior Science and Technology Analyst. So it's been over three decades since the Chernobyl incident took place on the early hours of April 26th, 1986. Without going too much into the details of what happened on the night, um, a number of things conspired to create a catastrophic failure of the number four reactor at the uh, the VI Lenin nuclear power plant in Chernobyl, uh, just outside the town of Pripyat in what at the time was um, within the Soviet Union is now Ukraine. Um, and the long story short is uh, a botched safety test blew the lid off the reactor and released a massive plume of highly radiated material into the atmosphere and then the weather took it, you know, wherever the weather took it. Now, Eugene, you have quite a personal connection to this story, don't you? Because you were effectively there at the time, right? Well, yes, I was there in the sense of almost being born. (laughs) So actually, my family lived in Kiev at the time, which was just about 100 miles away. So uh, because of the accident, I actually ended up being born in Moscow instead of Kiev, unlike the rest of my family, and then only being able to return about a month later. And one of the criticisms that's been levied um, at Russia's handling of the incident was that it took a long time for the information to actually disseminate out that there had been this catastrophic failure of the reactor. Well, I think now, in retrospect, what matters about Chernobyl, besides the obviously the catastrophic you know, human impact and the health impact, was that it was one of those really early signs that things were not going well in the Soviet Union. So timing is important here because this came about a year into Gorbachev's uh, term. And, you know, Gorbachev came in with this promise of reform. He was going to restructure the system. And there was a lot of excitement, uh, both internally from, you know, within the Soviet Union and also in the West, that this was a signal of of many changes to come for the better. Uh, Now, but Chernobyl sort of exposed the limits of those reforms because coming in the uh, in the context of glasnost or openness this was supposed to be your you can talk about problems more openly now uh, within soviet society than you could in the past uh, however because of the severity of chernobyl uh, the government chose to actually repress the information internally for for a matter of, se- of several weeks so people in the west in, in europe knew of chernobyl well before uh, people did within the country itself um, and that, I think, just goes to show that the, the limits of that the reform process could take. Um, and it was, like I said, one of those early cracks in the system certainly didn't lead to the fall of the Soviet unit itself. But it was one of those first steps. You mentioned an interesting fact there that it's very hard to keep something of this magnitude under wraps. And actually, the first indications that something was 
deeply wrong. Um, it was picked up by you know scientists in in Europe and throughout the broader Soviet Union, uh, noticing that there'd been a massive upcrease in, in in ambient radiation levels. At that time, we were still in this this nuclear. We had sort of at the, at the very end of this nuclear power race. So you had the nuclear arms race. You also had a nuclear power race. I mean, there was more going on, more going on in the Soviet Union at the time financially as well. Mm-hmm. As you started to see the communist system that had been set up collapse for a variety of reasons. You saw that evident in the in the nuclear program as well, actually particularly in the material used to build Chernobyl's roof that eventually blew. So you had you had cost cutting measures, you had, you know, corruption, but that was all Russia continuing to try to keep up or stay ahead uh, as it were with nuclear power in in a in a nuclear power race. Um, with the United States, with Japan, eventually with Japan. And you mentioned that some corners had been cut on the, uh, you know, the Russian RBMK reactor type. But also Russia, in many ways, had not had some of the exposure that other nations had had in terms of having to deal with a nuclear event before. When we look at the uh, the Three Mile Island um, reactor, well, it was a semi-meltdown uh, that happened in the US. Um, there are a lot of tightening and a lot of more stringent regulations came in as a result of that, whereas a lot of the inherent flaws uh, within the Russian reactor weren't really widely known, were they? Nuclear scientists were obviously, and including those in Russia, were going to know the dangers of combining um, the, the graphite rods with the steam and, and water cooling in terms of a flammable and a, a pressure uh, potential explosion situation. But Russia was not beholden to the same stringent safety precautions that some of the Western countries were uh, following Three Mile in 79. That being said, Chernobyl did essentially discontinue the use of that type of reactor eventually. It took a while, it took more than a decade. But let's talk a little bit about the impact on the Soviet Union itself, because this was a major destabilizing event at a time when Russia was already on unstable footing in terms of its competition with the West, right? Yes, that's right. I mean, part of Gorbachev's uh, Glasnost program or Perestroika program, the twin programs, was in order to improve relations with the West. This was at a time after, you know, a decade of stagnation, essentially, under Brezhnev. And so uh, Gorbachev was seen as somebody that was brought in to sort of revitalize the, the Soviet Union to I- improve the, the economic relationships. But because of things like Chernobyl and the cover-up, and then you had basically, you know, just lagging economic inefficiencies. Uh, the Soviet Union was was such an entrenched system that a, a simple reform or just a, a partial reform wasn't ever going to really work. I mean, it's easy to say that now in hindsight, but at the time it was believed that just some modifications to the system could could sustain it. Um, and, that, and that just wasn't true. And, and we saw kind of this sort of, uh, you know, mixed or partial reform effort applied to a lot of different things with allowing some discussions to place to take place, but then cracking down on protests when things like nationalism would boil up. Um, you know, th- there were some economic measures that were taken also um, not exactly successfully. And all of this um, eventually led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. So Chernobyl was essentially just, you know, a, a sort of a symptom rather than the cause of the fall of the Soviet Union. But it was just the the addition of, of all of these different pressures and factors that would eventually prove the Soviet Union's undoing. And certainly the, the ripple effects of the incident continue to be felt to this day uh, in a variety of ways. Clearly, there's, you know, a, a radioactive half-life of uh, material that that is still out there despite the Russian containment efforts. But let's focus a little bit on the impact on the the nuclear industry itself. Um, 
obviously we still have nuclear energy and it, it took a, a while for trust to be rebuilt after the Chernobyl incident. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, Becca? Yeah, we saw, we saw particularly some European countries really step back from nuclear, although some like France continued to, to pioneer and develop nuclear power. So it wasn't a universal turning your back on nuclear, so to speak. But you did see a sort of a concern over the safety. You saw increased safety regulations, making it a little bit more difficult for nuclear power to really take off. But that, that wasn't permanent. You saw revitalization. You saw, you know, an uptick in incorporation. You saw Japan, for instance, really placing its energy security strategy um, solely on nuclear shoulders. And then you had Fukushima happen in, in 2011, which saw another round of, of global hesitance um, that continues to this day in some places surrounding nuclear. So nuclear's advantage is it's essentially zero emission energy source. It provides a baseline power, so it's not variable like wind or solar. But now we're seeing the cost of all of the safety regulations, the continually changing safety regulations in many places that come with nuclear power and the concerns about these rare but catastrophic incidences that can occur with uh, nuclear power. That's sort of the ebb and flow of nuclear over the last three decades. So I think when we consider the Chernobyl incident, it does raise that interesting question. When you compare the two uh, incidents themselves, I mean, Becca, should we have faith in nuclear energy to be safe? I mean, the proponents would absolutely say absolutely yes. Um, that while catastrophic and and widely covered, um, there's still, if you look at you know incidences and and accidents that happen, you know, in power production in any kind of manufacturing facility, they're still relatively rare, um, and it's still a very low percentage. So the so the proponents of nuclear would say absolutely yes, it's still safe. Obviously, you're not going to be able to predict earthquakes or the magnitude of them. So the best that a place like J Japan can do on a fault line still wanting to rely on nuclear is is build in as many safety protocols as you can. But there's never a 100% guarantee in anything in life. But it appears that the regulations are, are basically asking nuclear that, which really ups the cost for nuclear energy. And that's really the issue we're seeing with nuclear right now in the nascent energy transition globally as we look to limit hydrocarbon consumption is that nuclear is having a hard time competing and be, and being part of that bigger picture even though it makes a ton of sense as a baseline power load because the economics just aren't there and safety regulations play a large part in that i mean in terms of perception of safety uh eugene you grew up in the immediate aftermath of chernobyl and then proceeded to live through the the fall of the soviet union um, in the years when you were growing up, what was the general feeling um, in, in Russia about the, the safety of nuclear? Well, I just have to say that my situation is probably not a typical one because in large part because of Chernobyl and some of the uh, things that happened afterwards, my family actually decided to leave the Soviet Union prior to the collapse. So we actually left in 89 um, and then moved eventually to the U.S., from which we then, you know, we meaning my family, I was quite young at the time, were watching, obviously, with, with great concern as, you know, these events which we had a feeling would uh, lead to some difficulties did, in fact, lead to the collapse of the Soviet Union, which ushered in, uh, you know, quite a turbulent period in uh, Russian history, Russian uh, modern history. 
but eventually did lead to a stabilization of the country and the splitting, of course, of the Soviet Union into various republics. So we're now seeing, you know, Ukrainian uh, politics is, is, is now separate from and often contentious with Russia. Uh, but I think that the, it's, it's a lesson that has been learned uh, or that is trying to be learned by the subsequent governments that, yes, it's important to have stability, but it's also important to make sure that information is known for the well-being of citizens. How does Russia stand now as a net energy exporter? Is, is Russian nuclear energy still a desirable resource outside of uh, the Russian Federation? Well, it, it monetarily doesn't match their, their hydrocarbon exports by any means. The export of nuclear power and nuclear technology is still a, a crucial element of Russia's energy export policy. Looking at their model, because um, Rose Adam, it was state-sponsored and state-supported for so long until, you know, in 2017 is where we start, saw the first break start there. Russia was able to not be as beholden to the economics that many uh, Western nuclear power companies were, and they were able to provide much better deals for countries looking to incorporate nuclear power into their energy systems. So we see Russia going into several places in the Middle East, working with India, African um, relationships as well. So um, that allowed Russia to project influence in a different way than it did with its pipeline politics, but it's the same kind of idea. Something that the Russians learned the hard way is just protecting your food chain and, again, preventing any kind of meltdown from really uh, affecting the, the water table. Um, so it seems like the, the issues surrounding nuclear are well-known and prevalent at the moment. We can't say here that there will never be another nuclear incident. Well, I think where you're going, the future of nuclear, Ben, like we're looking at, in order to remain cost-competitive, the future of nuclear is probably, and I won't say for certain, but probably in smaller reactors. So you, we're not talking about the giant reactors. You're talking about these small modular reactors. So in that sense, the magnitude of accident would be somewhat limited just by where the, the industry appears to be going at this point. Well, I think that seems like a really good place to uh, to end. And I would definitely encourage anyone wanting to learn more about the, the future of the nuclear energy industry um, and certainly how global events will impact energy in general, you can go to Stratfor Worldview online. And also, there's a lot of resources surrounding Chernobyl. In fact, Becky, you've just finished reading a good book on the, the incident itself, right? Yeah, I would, I would just jump in and, and highly recommend Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham. Um, it's a great detailed account of the history of the disaster itself. And dare I say, we've all been uh, glued to the uh, HBO miniseries on Chernobyl itself. Uh, so let me say thank you, Becca and Eugene, for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks. That's all we have time for today. But if you're interested in learning how Stratfor can help you with analytic tools to visualize and anticipate those areas in the world where your interests and operations are at the greatest risk, be sure to visit stratfor.com. And there you can find out about individual, team, and enterprise-level access. And you can find us at stratfor.com slash subscribe. And if you have a question about this podcast or even an idea for the next one, please drop us an email at podcast at stratfor.com. And as always, please, if you have a moment, leave a review on the podcast page on iTunes or wherever you listen. We really do appreciate your feedback. And for more geopolitical intelligence, links, and fun facts about what goes into forecasting world events, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.